If you would, grab a Bible. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 4 together. Matthew 4, where we will begin uh, this period of our worship, where we are going to open God's Word and study together and hear a message from God's Word. Thank you so much for being here. We have visitors here with us. We want you to feel welcome. We are glad that you're here. We want to get to know you, and uh, we are thankful that you've come our way. If you want to give us your information, we'd love to reach out to you and talk more. If there's some need that brought you here this morning, uh, we'd love to chat with you about that. Anything we can do to help you, we want you to know that you're welcome, and we're glad that you're here. Matthew chapter 4, I want to begin by reading here. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 5, where it says of Jesus, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Have you ever had someone use your own words against you? Maybe you were in an argument, and you said something earlier in the argument, and then later on the other person comes back and said, now you said this. And you hear it and you say, well, that, that's not what I meant to say. Sarah and I have a funny way about this, so I don't remember things that I said yesterday, but Sarah remembers, I think, everything I've ever said. (laughs) So sometimes she will say, now you said this, and I will have no memory of this, but I've learned that she knows better than I do what I actually said. It's hard though, isn't it, when your own words are used against you, and you hear, well, I did say that, but that's not what I meant, or maybe I was joking, or I meant to say it this way. But there's also that little bit of frustration there, isn't it? To say, well, I know what you meant. And it's kind of hard to hear your own words being used to tell you that you said something that you didn't intend to say. That's what happens here. Satan is tempting Jesus. And in the first temptation, Jesus answers Satan with scripture. And so Satan says in the second temptation, well, you want to talk scripture? You know what? You should throw yourself down for it is written. Verse 6, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So Satan shows us here that it's possible for us to take Scripture and to twist it, to take it to places God never intended, to take God's words in a way God didn't mean. And he shows us not only is it possible, it's dangerous because he is trying to use God's word to convince Jesus to do something God wouldn't want. There is a word for what Satan does here. To take a passage, rip it out of its context, and try to use it in a way that was not intended. He takes Psalm 91, which is a a psalm about the blessings God gives to his people, and says, instead of using it and thinking about that, I want you to test God and see if he really meant what he said there. And the word for what Satan does here is the word proof texting. Taking one text, isolating it, and then using it to prove something that it didn't intend to teach. So proof texting is very common in Bible discussions. Instead of let's turn over and read a passage and think through, instead we just sort of quote it, at someone as if it proves our point. With that in mind, I want you to go with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter 3. This is a fascinating little passage because here you have Peter commenting on the writings of Paul, the letters of Paul, and especially how people use and think about Paul's letters. 2 Peter 3 and verse 15. 2 Peter 3, 15 says, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. 
Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the, the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. So Peter is commenting on Paul's letters and he has a point he wants to communicate. The point is in verse 15, count the patience of the Lord as salvation. He is talking about how, how long you have waited for Jesus to fulfill his promise and come back and the patience should be salvation. But that that leads him to discuss Paul's letters because Paul says something similar to that as we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And he says in verse 16, as he does, Paul, in all his letters, when he speaks of them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they also do the rest of the scriptures. So he says, some people take Paul's hard to understand passages and they misuse them, they twist them so that they end up saying things, coming to conclusions that Paul never intended. And he says it's not just Paul that they do that to. They do that to the other scriptures too. The things God has said, they twist to their own destruction. So the scripture is good. That's not the problem. The problem is that it's possible for us to take it in the wrong way and twist it and end up hurting ourselves and others. So Satan proof texts and Peter warns of scripture twisting. These are ways that the Bible can be manipulated and distorted and misused to our own destruction. So I want to talk about that for a few minutes this morning. I want to talk about proof texting and scripture twisting. I want to call your attention to this phenomenon. And then I want to show you the challenge that it poses for you and me. That if we're going to understand the Bible as God's word, we're going to have to watch out for how we can be guilty of proof texting and scripture twisting. Sometimes people make a statement like, you can make the Bible say whatever you want. And you know what they mean when they say that. They don't mean it literally that you can make the Bible say something it doesn't say. What they mean is you can take a passage and change the meaning of the Bible and act as if it's saying something it's not saying. And I want to spend a few minutes at this part of the lesson showing you just how common this is. And I want you to get the feeling as we go through that these examples are going to get closer and closer to home. Back a few years ago, an evangelical pastor named Bruce Wilkinson wrote a book called The Prayer of Jabez. You might remember this book. Some of you amazingly were not born when this book was written, which makes me feel super old. But uh, The Prayer of Jabez was based entirely on a very obscure passage in 1 Chronicles. This is the passage. Well, there it is. 1 Chronicles 4, 9, and 10. Jabez, this is just in a genealogy, by the way. Jabez was more honorable than his brothers, and his mother called his name Jabez, saying, because I bore him in pain. Jabez called upon the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my border, and that your hand might be with me, and that you, might, you would keep me from harm, so that it might not bring me pain. And God granted what he asked. So you have a prayer here. Jabez asks God to bless him and enlarge his border. His hand would be with him and keep him from harm, so that he wouldn't bring uh, pain. And uh, so Wilkinson, based on those two verses, writes an entire book about how we can, pray the, we can pray the prayer of Jabez. And this is what he says about it. He says, I want to teach you how to pray a daring prayer that God always answers. 
It is brief, only one sentence with four parts and tucked away in the Bible, but I believe it contains the key to a life of extraordinary favor with God. This petition has radically changed what I expect from God and what I experience every day by His power. In fact, thousands of believers who are applying its truths are seeing miracles happen on a regular basis. Now that is an amazing claim. Somewhere, and he says it tucked away in 1 Chronicles, is a secret of a prayer that God always answers. And it talks about extraordinary favor with God and it will make miracles happen on a regular basis. Now you can see why the book sold 9 million copies. That would be impressive. And yet, nowhere is the question raised, what's the purpose of this passage about Jabez? Is God really revealing in a way that only Bruce Wilkinson has ever discovered the true secret of miracles and constant prayer life that God always answers? Is that what 1 Chronicles 4, 9, and 10 is really about? That question is unanswered. Instead, we take this passage and we rip it, uproot it, And then we try to apply it to modern American Christian life. If you were to go into a Christian bookstore, you would see this. I I think they're everywhere. Okay, Uh, Jeremiah 29 and verse 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. That sure is nice, isn't it? It is. It's a great passage. It's just not addressed to us at all. If you read in context what Jeremiah 29 is talking about, it's Jeremiah's letter to the exiles who are already in Babylon. And God is reassuring them, after 70 years you're going to come out. Because I know that even though things look grim and you're in a foreign land, I know the plans I have for you. I'm going to make good things happen to you. And it might be so nice if we were to say, you know what, I, I like that. I like that God has plans for me and he wants to prosper me and not harm me, which of course prosper there, that sounds really good, especially when we're talking about kind of a prosperity gospel. And yet it seems a lot more comforting to take it as if God has a special, unique plan for every one of us and that that plan is always going to work out great. That's the kind of thing you want to put on your wall, right? And yet it's not really what the passage is saying. When God inspired this to be written, when Jeremiah wrote it down, he was not thinking about us and our situation. I understand. It may be that we decide that some passage like this has a faint echo in which we can derive benefit from it. I understand that. But that can only come after we acknowledge what it's actually saying. What is it actually intended to mean? And then we can say, well, maybe in some way God has good plans for everyone. Okay. But what is he talking about? In the passage. Sometimes when you get into religious discussions, there will be proof texts offered like this. We're talking about someone who wants to follow Jesus, but we disagree about some matter, especially salvation. I have noticed this happens when I have discussions or read the works of Calvinists. They will quote a passage like Psalm 51, and the reason is they have a a particular doctrine by which they say that that we are all affected by Adam's sin and that none of us have any ability to do what's right. And so they'll go to Psalm 51. They won't go there, actually. They'll just sort of cite it. And the passage says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And so they say, there it is. From that, they make the leap to original sin. That what David is really saying is, when Adam sinned, then that contamination was passed down through every mother and father, all the way down to my mother, and in sin I was conceived, which I think says more than what they intend, and then somehow now I am tainted by Adam's sin. 
Now, if you carefully study Psalm 51, you will notice that David is not blaming his mother or Adam for his sin. He's saying, I'm guilty. In fact, he says it over and over again in Psalm 51. Very little thought is given to the idea that personal responsibility cannot happen if we are broken from the time of conception so that we were already sinners and now we're just living out what was already the purpose for us. Uh, Calvinists will also do that with this passage, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And if you talk with the Calvinists long, this passage will come up too because they want to say that your heart is completely contaminated. You can't even understand God. See, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is sick. It's deceitful above all things. But the passage actually is teaching, if you look carefully in Jeremiah 17, that we should trust in God and not in man because God can search minds and judge deeds. Man is unworthy of our trust. But the idea that, that we can't have any understanding, that's not here in Jeremiah 17. Perhaps most telling is the idea of scripture twisting and proof texting when it comes to salvation arguments. So you have probably had these discussions with someone about what do we need to do to become Christians. And so if you're talking to people, most of people in the evangelical world, they will say, you know what, we are saved completely apart from any works. And if you ask them, well, why do you believe that? They'll go to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And this is the passage that will come up. Uh, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And they will take this passage, and they will then interpret the entire rest of the Bible through the lens of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So that any work we ever do, even if God tells us to do it, even if it's clearly linked to salvation, even things like repentance or things like baptism, they will say, no, see Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. That's a work. You're trying to earn your salvation. If you've ever had that debate, It's a frustrating debate because it doesn't matter what other passage we bring up or how many other passages or what Paul is describing in context in Ephesians 2. The only issue is once we have that established, everything else has to fall in line. It is as if that it's the only passage in the Bible that matters. But you know what is interesting? Is that in response to that, I've very often seen my brethren do the exact same thing. In fact, I've done it myself. I say, yeah, yeah, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, but, but, uh, but Acts 2, 38. Now, this is the one that you really need. And so we'll proof text this. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, you know, yeah, all that's nice, but really, this is what you need to do. And instead of saying, well, this passage is teaching us something very important about the nature of our works in relation to our salvation. And this passage is also teaching us something very important about the nature of works to our salvation. Instead, what we do is we set them up as two enemy passages and say, now you pick. Are you going to be an Ephesians 2 Christian or are you going to be an Acts 2 Christian? And so we take those passages and it's a stalemate. Whose passage wins? I have seen this quite frequently, uh, with church things. Arguments about what the church is and what the church should do. So this occurred, uh, usually this occurred in the context of the institutional debates in the 50s and 60s. And in attempting to prove that the church 
should do the evangelistic work and not a missionary society or something like that, then passages were often used, often cited. I would call them proof texts. And I have seen this. In fact, I've looked through them this week just to refresh my memory and notice, yes, these things are still here, passages that are not really teaching what they are claimed to be teaching. So here, uh, this is 1 Timothy 3.15, which is cited as a reason why the church should support evangelistic work. We should be teaching the gospel to those who are lost. He says, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Or yours might say something like that, a pillar of the truth, pillar and support of the truth. The problem is, this passage and all the context surrounding it says nothing about evangelism or the local church in evangelism. In fact, if anything, studying 1 Timothy, where Paul has left Timothy in Ephesus to basically straighten out problems in the church in Ephesus, if anything, Paul is telling Timothy about the importance of teaching the truth to the church, in the church. They're the ones who are having problems living by and applying the truth. So the idea that this would then say something about our evangelical burden, evangelism burden on the world, to me, is a proof text. It is not something that is accurate according to the context. And then you have this passage, which is used in the same way, 1 Thessalonians 1, 8, 9, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So when you see this word here, sounded forth, and your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, that sounds like evangelism, doesn't it? But in context, it's not. You can see it in the passage. He's saying, they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols. What people are saying is not you are going out evangelizing, but people are talking about your conversion. So to take that passage and use it in that way is a proof text. It's not what it's teaching. Or you have this passage, this is Ephesians 3.10, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So then you have the question, well, you certainly do have the church making known the manifold wisdom of God. Great. But first of all, is it a local church? Are we talking about one specific local church or are we talking about God's people generally showing his wisdom by him saving them in spite of their sins and revealing his will in an unexpected way. Then you have the question, well, if this is about evangelism, who is being evangelized? The rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In other words, spiritual powers, the spiritual forces of wickedness that we are fighting. Ephesians 6 talks about them as the ones that we are fighting. We take up our armor so that we can fight them. So this isn't about evangelism. This is about God's people as an example of God's greatness. So I understand that might not be the most exciting example to you. What I want to show you is no one is immune from the dangers and the appeals of proof texting and scripture twisting. In fact, it raises some very challenging questions. Have you considered that when there is proof texting and scripture twisting, we really have one of two options. Either someone has not studied to understand the context and meaning of a passage, or they are deliberately misusing the passage. 
Neither one of those is good. Now is the part where I get to tell you that I have done this before and that I am ashamed of it, and yet I have to say it. I'm not immune from this, and I felt both the pressure to make Scripture say things I knew it didn't say and the inability to truly be honest with what I was reading. I have had times where I felt that I needed to say something that the Bible didn't really say. And that pressure has caused me to do things that I'm ashamed of. This is a challenging problem. So the question then is, how do we fight this? What do we do? It's it's one thing to say, yeah, a lot of people do this. It's one thing to say, we've struggled with it. The question is, what's the solution to proof texting and scripture twisting? How do we use these things in the right way? Now, You can see the danger. You can see the appeal where we're in a debate and we are going through the arguments and suddenly it becomes about me and you. Who's going to win? My passage, your passage. My argument, your argument. And we completely forget about God. What about God? What about God's will, God's word? That's where I want to return us to. Now, first of all, if we are going to fight proof texting and scripture twisting, we have to decide that God wins over everything else. You remember what we started with when Jesus says, and Satan comes to him, if you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Do you remember what Jesus says? It is written. When Satan quotes scripture at him, what does he do? It is written again. When Jesus says, I'm going to quote scripture at you now, what he is saying is not just, hey, I know scripture. Hey, Satan, have you heard of this passage? What he is saying is, I'm going to do what God said. Scripture wins over you. Scripture wins over my hunger. Scripture wins over pride. Scripture wins over everything. And we need the mentality that says God's word wins over everything else. Well, I had a passage there I didn't put on. Uh, Romans 3 and verse 4. Romans 3 and verse 4. Let's turn over there. So in the context here, Paul is asked the question, does people's disobedience mean that God is unfaithful? Romans 3 and verse 4. Uh, Let's read verse 3. Romans 3 and verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So God must be right, even if it means every person is wrong. And it actually does mean that. Every person is wrong, and God is right. When God speaks to Job, remember Job spends much of the book of Job questioning God's judgment against him. He stresses, Job, when you question me, you're crossing a line. And this is what he says. This is Job 40 and verse 8. He says, will you even put me in the wrong Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? I want you to hear those questions. God is saying, it may be that you think you're right and I'm wrong, that you think you're the one who gets to tell me and I have to adjust. Would you put me in the wrong? And of course, Job is incorrect about that. God's word wins over everything. Let me be more clear. God's word wins over my experience. 
My experience can give depth and power to God's word. But when experience and scripture come into conflict, I trust the word. Let God be true and every man a liar. God's word wins over my family. Jesus says that specifically, remember? He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. That he has to come first. And even if that means that my family is incorrect, if there's a problem it's going to cause in my family, God's word wins. God's word must win over my culture. And whatever you describe as your culture, whether that's racial, whether that's regional, whether that's national, whether that's your family, there are going to be things that God is going to challenge you on through his word. And if we come to the word with this perspective, I trust God over who I am, then we can defeat this problem. And God's word must win over popularity. It's very difficult for us to read God's word and see there's a conclusion it's driving us toward that is not a popular conclusion. It's not what people in the world are saying. It's not what my brethren are saying. It's not what I've always heard. That's a challenge. But God's word wins over everything else. If we start there, we're on the way. Second, we fight this by seeking what God means. Remember we started in Matthew 4 and Satan misquotes scripture to Jesus. And Jesus says, it is written again. That there might be more to the story than just what one passage says or what one person who twists that scripture is trying to make it say. I am deeply impressed by how Jesus handles scripture this way. Have you noticed that Jesus is always after what does God mean when he expresses something? So Jesus is the one who says, haven't you read what God said? Haven't you read... God wanted his temple to be a house of prayer for all nations, and instead you've got animals and money changers in here? Haven't you read, out of the mouth of babes you have perfected praise? Haven't you read, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? God's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Haven't you read? Jesus is teaching us there is a meaning, and we have to seek the meaning. This is a different question than who wins in the debate. This is a different question than which position am I going to hold? What does God mean? Let's say I were to write you something. Try to think of a good example. You know, when I was growing up, it would have been a letter or something. We don't write many letters anymore. Uh, let's say an email, a text message. And uh, in the course of that email or text message, I have a sentence or two that's really confusing to you. And so you look at it and you think, I don't know what that means. Well, what would you do? If you didn't understand my email or my text message, and let's say for whatever reason you couldn't just directly ask me, you would probably, first of all, you would read again the, the places around that, that section that you don't understand and see, well, what, what was his argument? What was he saying? And then you might think in broader context, you might think, you know, what, what conversations have I had with Jacob that sometime long ago he said this about that? What, what, have I, what expressions have I heard him use in the past? What do I know about his life? Maybe that would shed some light on what he means in these sentences. And then you would think about the history and conversations that we've had and 
What I hope you would not do is just rip those two or three words or sentences out of my email that you know are not what I mean and try to get me to say something I didn't. Maybe tell somebody that I'm close to, can you believe what he said to me? Look at these sentences. I would hope you wouldn't do that because that would be extremely disrespectful to me. And I want to assure you that it is extremely disrespectful to take God's words in a way that he did not intend, knowingly, and use them to say something we know he didn't mean. What does God mean? If you answer that question, you're going to look carefully at the context. You're going to be fair, and you won't get ahead of yourself. You'll say, you know what? This is worth my time. So, for example, we talked about salvation debates. Are we Ephesians 2 or are we Acts 2? Do you know that God has a meaning in both of those passages? Something he wants to communicate to you. And the question is not, whose side are we on? The question is, what does God want me to know? What does God mean? And if we can answer that question, we will draw closer to the truth and we won't end up proof texting and scripture twisting. The blessing is we have other disciples who can help us understand and draw closer to God's meaning. We can ask each other that question. What do you think God means here? What do you see in the context? How can we get closer to the meaning God has? But what won't do is to act as if God's word is just there to prop up our agendas and our interests. Seek what God means. Third thing, we fight this by honesty. This, how we understand God's word, is fundamentally an issue between us and God. You know there will be a time when all the other voices are silenced and we will stand before God. And the question then will not be, what group did you associate with? What positions did you hold? The question will be, did we obey God? In that moment, we're going to want to know, did I understand what God wanted from me? Be honest. It seems to me that when we get into religious discussions, very often honesty is one of the first things that goes. Where we suddenly say, you know what? We need to win. And if we've got to twist some passages to get them in, jam them into our schema, we're going to do it. Because we just need to win. Be honest. And honesty will answer so many of these questions and concerns. John chapter 7. I would like for you to turn over with me to John 7. This is the last passage we're going to look at this morning. But it is an important one because it speaks to the power of honesty in helping us to, to, to determine what is true. John, 17, uh, John 7 and verse 14. John 7 and verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. So they, they questioned him about his teaching. How did you learn this? You never went to rabbi school. He says, My teaching comes from the Father. But then he says in verse 17, 
If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. If we want to do God's will, we will know whether Jesus is speaking for himself. Jesus is teaching us that motives matter in determining truth and lies. Motives matter in determining the authenticity of his teaching. Motives matter to God. This is the same Jesus who says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. This is the Jesus who teaches us to be honest about what we're seeking from God. Let me be clear. Honesty means that we understand that what this passage means will matter for me eternally. It is not about what is convenient for me or what wins the argument or what shuts down the other side. Honesty means when I speak, I'm going to try to say what the text really says, not what I want it to say or wish it would say. And it means I'm going to admit when things don't fit in my box, look, I can't make sense of this. I don't know how that works. I don't know if that's true. Sometimes we wish we had more information. Sometimes we wish it said things it doesn't say. Be honest anyway. By the way, I would also suggest that that might help you when you're having discussions with others because people appreciate honesty and they run from dishonesty. Honesty also means that I'm willing to always re-examine a passage, an idea, a teaching and say, well, I thought that a couple of years ago. I thought that the last time I studied it, but maybe I missed something. Maybe there's more to the picture. Maybe something causes me to reconsider. But I want to have a soft heart to the possibility that I may have been wrong in the past and I may be wrong in the present. And the only way I'm going to know is by honestly seeking the will of God about this. God doesn't need us to defend him. He can defend himself. But he does want us to be honest and to seek his will. I have to say, this is a really hard lesson. It's a hard lesson for me. I don't know if it's as hard for you as it is for me. Because I know that there are times, even when I don't intend to, that I'm going to take passages the wrong way. And that I'm going to use them without you know, a full understanding of exactly the context in which they were written and the full meaning. But the fact that it's difficult, the fact that sometimes you're going to be able to look at me and say, Jacob, I think you were proof texting. That doesn't mean that these things are not true and that they're not a danger. But if we can keep these things in order, we can fight it. We can be safe. We can know God's will. And we can obey Him. Have you ever had somebody use your own words against you? Doesn't that make you wonder how God feels? To see people who take His words and then twist them and use them in ways He never intended. So let's resolve that we're going to seek God's truth in sincerity and in honesty, and let him lead us through his word. There might be someone here this morning who is ready to take the step to give their lives over to the Lord Jesus. And we have set aside this time in our service to give you an opportunity to do that and to make that need known to our group so that we can help you. Whatever need that may be, it may be that you are not a Christian and you've decided that it's time for you to come to Jesus and have your sins washed away by his blood, to have his sacrifice make the difference in your soul's destiny. 
And if you're ready to do that this morning, be baptized into Christ, have your sins washed away, we'd love nothing more than to help you do that. Or it may be that you have some crisis or problem that you want to make known to your brethren so that we can pray with you. If there is some need that you have, we invite you to come to the front right now as we stand and sing to encourage you.